Now entering Nerdist.com. The ATX Television Festival is always a wonderful experience, and Season 6, which was held June 8th through 11th this year, 2017, was no exception. As usual, Austin was the place to be for TV fans who got panels and programming of current series like The Americans, Bajillion Dollar Properties, and The Mick, reunions of Northern Exposure, Battlestar Galactica, the shows of Linda Bloodworth Thomason, and others, and panels on topics ranging from first gigs and big breaks to TV under Trump. I'm going to bring you recordings of a whole lot of these panels, and today's episode is one of them. ATX itself is putting up video of many of the events, and you can find those at atelevisionexperience.com. They'll also soon offer podcasts, both ones you'll find here and recordings exclusive to the ATX podcast feed at atelevisionexperience.com slash podcasts. Check that out in the coming months. In the meantime, first of all, go get tickets to Season 7 of ATX Television Festival. It's June 7th through 10th, 2018, and as usual, it'll be a special TV experience. And now, enjoy today's episode. Barbem from Variety, and it's my pleasure to welcome Joel Weisberg and Joel Fields. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, Thank everybody. You. So I guess um, let's just start this way. I mean, I know you went into season five, not you know, with a, the world in a sort of crazy place, but now you're going into season six. How much of that is influencing your storytelling with what's swirling around in the headlines? Are you able to tune it out? We. Uh Tune it out is probably going too far. It's, you know, it's everywhere. We read the papers. We watch TV. We talk about it constantly at lunch. Our lunch hour is almost <laughs> exclusively devoted to eating and talking about politics. Uh, but once we sit down to write and, and think about the show, we really do our best to do that in a bubble and, and not think at all about what's going on because we have this fear almost that it'll, like, infect the show. Because, you know, the one thing you don't want is people watching the show and thinking, oh, those clever writers, they put little things here and there that have to do with Donald Trump or what's going on with Russia today. So we, we work very hard to, to essentially keep it out. It is, I will say it's weird for me. I mean, I think you had much more familiarity with this world beforehand, but having spent years now learning how good the Soviets were and now the Russians are at this kind of spycraft uh, for the purposes of writing the show to suddenly see it play out at such a high level on the news every morning and every night is a little staggering. Could you have ever imagined when you conceived this world that we'd now be living in a world where the Russians are the you know, quote-unquote villains or they're so involved in our intelligence gathering? Well, it was the opposite. You know, when, when the show started out, things were at a very essentially peaceful and calm place with Russia. And one of the ideas of the show was that's a great opportunity to say, let's look at these guys who were our enemies, but now let's see, maybe that was unnecessary, maybe that was crazy, and let's humanize them, and it'll be easy to do. Everybody will sit back and say, oh, yeah, what were we so bad at these guys for? And, like, two years later, everybody was foaming at the mouth again. 
So you're in the process now of you know, writing this final season. It w- was it something that you always imagined from the beginning, and how much has that changed as you, you know, now vision this final season? It's funny. Our stories sometimes change a lot. We, we write pretty far ahead, and we'll have ideas uh, written down in pretty extensive document form early on, and then some will stay with us and some will change. The ending itself has stuck, I think, since kind of middle of season two. We had an idea for an ending, and though there are different iterations of it, the one we've landed on so far is pretty much something we talked about from early days. And how much have Matthew and... um, God, I was going to say Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) She is Elizabeth to me. (laughs) You know, five minutes of hanging out with uh, Carrie, and she's not Elizabeth Jennings. Boy, oh boy. Thank God. Thank God, thank God, thank God, absolutely. I think sometimes she wants to be Elizabeth. She says all the time it's very liberating to play this character because she she gets to get that side of her out. How much have they influenced your storytelling? How much are you written written to their abilities and how much have they embodied the characters for you? Uh, That's a a tricky question. You know, in a way, it's just that once you, especially after a season or two, there's something about the about writing to these characters and writing to those actors where it, it all just sort of blends into one thing, uh, you know. So there's no, you know, they obviously can do anything. They're both so brilliant and they can do anything you write, and then they add their own things to it. So that it may have been at the very beginning of the show there was this concept of Philip and Elizabeth in our heads, but that's sort of gone away. That doesn't exist anymore. Now they're these characters that they've created. And I think that's different from what we had in our heads. It's something that they've put on the screen, and that's sort of what we write to now. They are incredible artists, and they do deep, deep work. So we'll get calls or emails from them, sometimes a week or two before a scene shoots. And the questions that they'll ask always go to very deep, subtextual levels. And we'll see in dailies or on the set subtle little moments that we had not written, but that they're clearly thinking about multiple episodes and the whole deep arc of their stories as they're digging into every scene. I remember this season, uh, we were watching dailies, and every there was a take where, in every take, Carrie would seemingly, mindlessly, just kind of absentmindedly scratch her leg. And I was like, wow, that's that's... She has a little itch, and then the second one, boy, she, she has a little itch. And then I realized that uh, she had been, uh, in the prior episode, bitten by all those bugs. And she found a little way to subtly keep it alive going forward. And uh, it's just a testament to the amount of homework they do before they hit the floor. Do they know what's in store for the finale? You know, it's interesting. Season by season, they've chosen not to know. And there's always a point in the kind of the middle of the season. We always have a, generally have a breakfast beforehand. We tell them the first part of the story, and they'll say, that's all we want to know. And then halfway through the season, or two-thirds of the way, they'll say, we want to know the rest. <laughs> It'll be a very, very random moment kind of on set where Carrie will go, come here, Matthew, we, we want to know. And then we'll tell them. <laughs> this year, we wound up telling them everything a couple months ago about the final season. So they know. Good luck getting them to talk. <laughs> About as much as like I'll have getting it out of you. <laughs> it's, the, it's the same with Noah, who every year we have this sort of back and forth. He says, I want to know, I don't want to know, I can't decide. Back and forth, back and forth. We tell him a little, we, he stops us. And then this year he came up with, well, now that I'm a director, I think I need to know the whole thing. 
But, but in fairness, then he stopped us. He said, well, we, then we were having lunch with him, and he said, are you about where my episode that I'm going to direct is? And we said, yes. And he said, okay, stop telling me. <laughs> Talk about having the actors as directors. What does that bring to the show for you? It's really, it's been great. Um, you, you know, uh, Tommy Schlamme was talking about this yesterday at a, at a panel we did, and he said that there's no, in a way, there's no more I ideal director in a certain way because they've spent years on set watching and, and learning how to direct, and, and so they can bring an incredible perspective to it. And then he also said there's nothing better than directing an actor right after they've directed an episode. He said they're so <laughs> understanding and so appreciative of all the problems a director has and, and everything they face. Uh, but for us, it, it's sort of a, a version of that also, that they really just have a... Uh, they bring so much understanding and, and so much depth of, of everything they've dealt with as actors and understanding the characters. And, uh, you know, with both Matthew and Noah, who have both directed multiple episodes of, of the show at this point, to sort of bring them into a whole other layer of the process, it's just been, first of all, it's just been fun. It's just been fun to work with them in a, in a different context and bring them into this different set of meetings and all the prep we do to get ready for the show. And in a way for us, I think, to get to know them in a different way as a, as a different kind of artist, it's just been, it's been great. Let's talk about Philip and Elizabeth and their journey, what they went through this season. Their marriage has been through some rough spots, but they really got closer this season. Talk about that decision and what, you know, how they kind of got there. Well, in a way, the whole season is informed by the final scene of the season. And for a show that's been about marriage from the beginning and uh, ultimately about family and marriage, that final scene to us was a statement of where they had come in all of these years. And this, this season was about getting them there. Obviously, some very big things happened in their marriage this year, not the least of which is they actually got married. Mazel tov. Uh, yes. <laughs> They're registered at Pottery Barn, by the way. <laughs> Check them out. We briefly toyed with the idea of actually just doing a registry and seeing if anybody would pick it up. Didn't. I thought it was a good idea. Um, but the notion that we would get them by the end of the season to a place where they had come together to a mutual desire to go home. And then circumstances would put Elizabeth in a place where she had to stay. And, Liz and Philip, because he loved and respected her, would know that that is what had to be for her and that that, therefore, is what had to be for the marriage, but that she, at the same time, because she loved and respected him, would know that he couldn't go on doing what he had been doing. We thought that was a very beautiful statement of, of where they were at. It sort of sets them up in an interesting place going into season six. Is Philip going to be okay? Right, that's the question. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it's going to go for me. <laughs> and what about Paige? She's, you know, we, last we saw her, she was pacing a parking lot where she had been attacked. That sort of, you know, is she going to be following in her mother's footsteps? Well, that, you know, we wanted to find a way this season to sort of advance that story and, and bring it to a, not necessarily, not necessarily bring it to a head, but have a kind of movement in that story where it seemed like uh, there'd been a real development you know, after all these years of her not knowing and then her finally knowing and then this kind of fight between Philip and Elizabeth about, about her soul, in a sense. And so to have her sort of actually training with her mother, well, there's a direction there. And, you know, you'll have to wait to next season to see where that direction goes. And I think for us, 
what what it does to the marriage and and where it takes Philip and Elizabeth is in a way just as interesting as what happens to Paige. I mean, ultimately, that's where so much of the show's land, show lands is between Philip and Elizabeth. But you know, they're not they're not they're not training. If you think about what's going on in Elizabeth's mind, they're not necessarily training just so that she can defend herself from a mugger. And meanwhile, another revelation this season was their other child who they have been ignoring. <laughs> Good old Henry. <laughs> what a revelation there. He turned out to be quite the little smart one. Could he know other things as well? Well, smart, uh, yes, but also, uh, you know, the question we started with was what subconsciously would be going on with him? And we've always operated from the principle early on that both of the, these kids know. They know what's the truth is. They may not know the specifics of the truth, but you don't grow up in that home without some sense that there's a huge secret being kept from you. And obviously, Paige uh, wanted to know on some level and ultimately confronted them two-thirds of the way through season three. And we thought it, it would be interesting to explore what would happen if Henry decided to wall himself off further, to wall the question off from himself and essentially to plot his escape early on. He's we'll not, see how that goes for him. <laughs> so he's not going to be happy that, with the news that he's not going to boarding school. He didn't seem happy, did he? No, not so much. <laughs> Although it might be better than the news that he was moving to Moscow. <laughs> yes. Because meanwhile, he's been developing a friendship with good old Stan next door, <laughs> across the street. Um, you know, and meanwhile, Stan's, we've got the question of Stan's girlfriend that's lingering over us. Yes, we I'm, do. I'm, good. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. <laughs> we're, we're like hardened against this. We've been training I, for five years. Exactly. To, uh, I didn't very think hard was, to get it out. I didn't us. think it was going to go any better for me. <laughs> but how much fun are you having sort of planting these questions? Are these all the questions that are going to be going into season six? At, this, at season six, there's no way out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've managed for five years not to give definitive answers, but at season six, you know, I think it's fair to say that probably they will all be answered. Yeah, by the time we're sitting here next year at this time with you, it'll be a different conversation. I, I, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Talk about, though, you know, obviously series finales are a big bar to, you know, to, you know, land. What inspires you going into a season finale? What, se what series finales do you admire, do you like, that you think have done really well? I, th I mean, I sort of the classic ones, I love the Sopranos finale, and I love the Mad Men finale. I've thought about, I've thought about that one a lot. Um, you know, it's funny, the, uh, I also really like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of NYPD Blue. We talk about that a lot. I, I love that show and, and watched uh, all of it. And uh, it's one of my favorite shows of all time. And I thought that had a, a great finale, too. Um, you know, it had a real, as opposed to, it's very different from The Sopranos and the Mad Men finale. That really had a, a story finale, in a sense, where Sipowitz takes over the, 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 the squad. Um, anyway, those are all, I, I love all of those. Uh, you know, we... We talk about this a lot. We talk about literary finales, too, and cinematic finales. But the, the truth is, we also just try to follow this story. And the goal is for it to be satisfying for what it wants to be. And if we try too hard to emulate something else we love, then we're sure to fail. So I think the biggest challenge for us is finding the best way to, to tell this one the, one the way it wants to be told. Do you identify with one character more than another? Is there one character whose story you really want to tell? The male robot. <laughs> I don't think, uh, 
you know, I identify a lot with Philip and Elizabeth, but I've always been, in a way, I feel like I've been pushed into a corner of feeling very always defensive for Elizabeth because more of the audience, I think, identifies with Philip. There's a way in which he's easier to identify with. And I think also, especially as the years have gone by, there's been a, a more vocal slice of the audience that identifies with Elizabeth, but especially at the beginning and still, a lot of people have said they find her cold, they don't understand her, they don't relate to her, and that's made me very defensive of her. And so I, I think about her a lot, and I walk the streets thinking, why don't people understand her? What's the problem? <laughs> you know, okay, yeah, she kills people a lot, and she can be a little bit of an ideologue, but she's also uh, very true, and very true to her cause. And if the roles were reversed, and she were, you know, just an American, staying true despite all the inducements of the other side in Moscow or something like that, people would consider her the real hero. So I, I and and also that she's not. I don't think of her as just a blind ideologue. I think of her as true to a cause that she believes in, and uh, so I have a lot of uh, admiration for her. Is there something that you've learned over the course of the show that's informing you as you write the finale? That's a very good question. You know, I, I'll circle back to your initial question about Matthew and Carrie, but also Noah, Holly, Margot, this incredible team of actors. What we've learned is whatever we can dream, they will amplify in beautiful ways. And there are some shows one works on where you have to be cognizant of the limitations of your actors. And this is a show where the limitations are only ours. And the more we bring to it, the more levels we can imagine, the, the deeper and richer they will go. And so there's been, there's been a liberation in the process in that regard that's been really great for us. Looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? We, um, I mean, it took us a while to find the show. You know, we started out at the very beginning with a, a much more episodic show, and we sort of found our way to a, you know, where each episode had a very contained story that you could follow from the beginning of the episode to the end, and then it slowly became a more serialized show where we told the stories over the entire season as opposed to having to have a real story in each episode, and the show worked better and became a deeper, richer show that way. Uh, since we didn't have to cram an entire plot into every episode, which took up almost all the space of that episode, there was then a lot more room to breathe, a lot more room to tell the character stories, and it just, it, that's what the show wanted to be. So, look, it, it is what it is, and that's, I don't really regret it, you have to find it, I wish we'd known that sooner, in a way, but you, you can't rewrite history in a real way. How do the two of you work together? Who does what? How do you balance the workload? Uh, we basically do everything together. Uh, you know, early on, we did everything together as a way of getting to know each other in a very intense circumstances. And then what became clear to us is that we were most efficient when we put our heads together at the same time on things. So we're better off in the editing room together uh, working through a cut than we are trading off. We're better sitting together writing uh, than we are trading off scene work although sometimes we'll do either of those things if the crunch is, is too great. What we've learned for us is that the, the more we do together, the more efficient we are. Uh, there's one exception which we discovered too late 
if you want to, th this is a real regret of mine, uh, which is email. So about a season ago, we started switching off email weeks. Joe's on one week, I'm on another week. And in terms of actually running the business of the production, that's been a huge practical relief because we know what's important enough that we have to reach out to each other for and what's just a matter of a quick response. And it's very nice to be untethered from your device during the week, every other week. You know, it's funny, if you, if you read any like business or management consultant book, they would say, I think they would say, don't do it the way we do it, right? <laughs> they would say, if you have two people, the whole efficiency of that is to divide everything up. But I think the reason that's not right, for, I think it's because it's more creative what we're doing, and when we put our creative heads together, uh, we're just, we just do better. We just come up with more ideas and better ideas. We bounce ideas off each other, and I think that's why that works better for us. I think we also, I mean, to be honest, it can be, I think we have fun together, and it's, it's like, not to get sappy, but it's less lonely. Have you ever disagreed? Absolutely. Um, we do tend to have a similar aesthetic, which has been helpful. We also just have a similar approach to the world and to problem solving. And so early on, we talked uh, kind of in ways that would bore most of the people in this room, I'm sure, about what our relationship would be like and how we'd work it out and, and how we were going to come to trust each other and what it meant to be honest with each other. And those things, even though they took away time from the show early on, I think they served us very, very well. Um, Creatively, our disagreements have never been an issue because I think, really without talking it through, we've intuitively had a feeling that if there's something that we don't agree on, then we haven't found the right creative path yet. And uh, we'll certainly talk through our ideas very openly, uh, but there's, there's never been a time when anybody's drawn a line in the sand because I don't think either of us feels that his ideas are so good or immutable that that there can't be something better. And in, unless there's something that we're both passionate about, then there's got to be a problem in there somewhere. Here's what our disagreements are like. We both have ideas all the time. So we sit down, and one of us will say, oh, I, have this, I have this idea. Here it is. And the other one will say, oh, great, that's a great idea. And then whoever had that idea will go, phew, phew, I thought it was a good idea. But then the disagreements are like, I have this idea. And then I'm going to say, eh, I don't know. And then the one who has that idea, shit, I thought that was a good idea. That's like, and that's the disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and, then, and then, then the other one will probably go, well, but what if this or that? And then one of us, usually me, will say, let's take a walk. And we, we both agree that's a good idea. <laughs> and then by the time we're done with the walk, there's an even better idea. How much attention do you pay to reviews? Do you read them? Well, reviews were, I'm so glad you call them reviews because there's, this, there's, there's a, a word we have to change and that's recap. Because the, there are people out there who are writing what are called recaps or sometimes reviews and they're really deep analytical essays uh, about the work we're doing. Sometimes I feel like they're longer and more thoughtful than the episodes themselves and that's not <laughs> to put down the episodes. You know, season one, they were enormously valuable to us because we were working almost 24 hours a day. I can't tell you how many sunrises we saw in our offices. And we were delivering the shows really much really as they aired. And we would read those essays and we would talk about them and they would generate creative conversations and thoughts. And it's impossible to say exactly what they led to, but they led to a lot of great creative discussions. By the time we got to the third season, we had wrapped the season by the time we started to air. 
and so it was a very different process. But all along, they're, they're incredibly insightful and, and helpful, and we're, we're grateful for that. And we're also grateful for the fact that the critics are essentially, in large part, responsible for the fact the show remained on the air. You know, they all, um, they all come out. The show airs Tuesday night at 10, and it's over at 11. And they've already written them. They've seen it in advance, so they're written, but they're not allowed to publish them until the show is over. So at 11 p.m. on Tuesday night, they push the button, and then there are 25 reviews of the show suddenly out. And I don't do very well unless I get enough sleep. And every Tuesday night, I'm like, I'm not going to stay up and read the reviews. <laughs> I'm going to sleep. I'll, I'll read them in the morning. And every Tuesday night, I'm like, it's, it's like 10.30, 10.45, and I'm about to get into bed. And I'm like, ugh. You know, and then I don't get into bed, and it's 11 o'clock. I'm like, I'm going to read one or two. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you don't even need to hear the rest of the story. At about 12.30, having read all every single review, I finally crawl into bed. In, on Tuesday nights in uh, Brooklyn and Manhattan, there are two wives saying, are you coming to bed? Are you coming to bed? You're not coming to bed, are you? There was a general tone to the reviews this season, or some people felt that the season was slow. Is that something that you think is fair? Did you take that in? How do you feel about that? Well, it, it was intended. I mean, we can't argue with that because that was the intention. The intention was to tell a different kind of story this season uh, that was more about the psychology of the characters and their and the family and their backstories and 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 what was going on emotionally and have uh, not no action but less action and in a sense sort of background the spying. So, you know, when people are sort of saying what they're onto is what our intention is, we were like, yes, that's, that's what we're trying to do. There, there, I think, have been a, several guiding principles for us in, in coming at the show. One has been that we can't try to make it in, in a way to, to please what we think others will want, so what we're looking for is what gets us most excited. And the other is every season we've set out to do something that feels different than a season we've done before. And as we talked about season five, we got really excited about the idea of digging deeper into these characters, deeper into this relationship, and not trying to replicate the kind of the big moves that had been there for us to pick in season four, but rather to find bigger character moves. And uh, that, that was what was exciting and interesting to us, and we'll look for something exciting and interesting uh, in the final season, too, we hope. So given all of that, how would you describe season six? We know you've got questions to answer. Can you give us something that would describe season six for us? You know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of pieces hanging out there, a lot of stories and a lot, literally a lot of stories, what, what, what's going on in the stories, but also a lot of threads of who these people are and sort of how they're, how their lives are going to end up, not just in terms of story, but in terms of their emotional development that we've been taking them along these paths for, for all these years. And um, I, I it's, it's final season, only 10 episodes. So we've got 10 episodes to... <laughs> we're a little relieved. You know, when you've been do, doing... It's a lot of work, 13, and we're sort of like, oh, we only got to do... only have to do 10 this year. But, um, you know, we've got 10 episodes to, to pull that all together, and we think it's going to... We, we think it's going to there's be a lot happening both in the both in the story world and in the emotional world. It's going to be I don't know if the action there's going to be a lot of it's going to be action packed and emotion packed is our plan. But we'll let you lean in on a little process thing apropos of those ten versus thirteen and and what a, the difference between a final season and all the seasons that preceded it in terms of process because we're coming to the end. 
we've had to write more. Uh, you know, usually we we break the entire arc of uh, the next season at the end of the prior season, and I think in our best season we wrote outlines for the first seven episodes, and then left the next sort of six in very rough, sketchy kind of here's the general shape form that we'll deal with when we come back, and and that was all fine. But in this case, it was sort of impossible to write episodes four, five, six, and seven without knowing what eight, nine, and ten were. So we've, we've had to outline very far in advance, which has been a good but somewhat exhausting process for us. Joe, are you tired? I, I'm very, very tired. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're going to lay down. <laughs> well, I'm tired, so I'm going to turn it over to you guys. So raise your hands. I'll... Go ahead. Yes, you. Thank you. Recruit is the right word for this show, too. <laughs> Appreciate the theme. Uh, when you mentioned Mad Men, it reminded me that your show, to me, is very similar to Mad Men in that you're kind of, you're going through a decade or a time in history that people remember. And I'm wondering if you feel obligated or constricted by, by going along with real-time events that people remember in history and how you pepper that in, either too much or just enough or you know, too little. Like, how do you fit those real-world events into your story? We had an instinct from the beginning that I think has turned out to be true that the history was going to be a great friend of ours, that it was going to be able to uh, drive a lot of stories um, in a way that you, you don't necessarily get if you're not doing a sort of period show taking place in real history. And especially because our show was a, a spy show that was in a sense so, had so much politics in it and so much history that that would all accrue to our benefit. And that's really, I think that's really been true if you look at a lot of our stories, you know, whether it's anything from the Reagan story to the Star Wars story to just all the events that are, that are swirling around, they're very dependent on the exact, not just the time period, but the year and the month of things that are that are going on. The, the the reverse version of that is that when we took that time jump in uh, in Latin, uh, season four, uh, was that season four or season five? Four. Four. You know, we, we literally jumped over like when the Soviets shot down KAL 007 and the Marine barracks bombings and the invasion of Granada and all this stuff that we had all these story ideas for, it happened to fall right in this time jump that could only happen then. And we were like, man, we could have done a whole season, two seasons during that time jump. But... But we were very, we're so, uh, we, we, are, we are so tied into exactly what month, what day, everything is happening that we couldn't find any solution to that. So that's how we have these boards that have our calendar on it. And we know, you could ask us any episode, any day, any scene, and we could tell you what day of the year that was taking place, and we're very rigid about it. We're so rigid and obsessed with this. It's such a great question, because you've just touched on a huge <laughs> obsession for us. That uh, we drive our post-production department crazy because if there's a TV on in the background of a scene, we will tell them, well, that's actually taking place on September 23rd, 1981, and go to the TV guide and find out what was on. It's, a, it's 8 o'clock, and we'll have three choices. And they'll say, but w w what? We, we can't, what? But, but, but I think in our heads, this story is actually happening in its alternate history, and it's very important to us 
not that anybody's going to go back and check the old TV guide, although now I'm sure someone here will. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, and, and certainly there are times when we screw up, and when we do, we're called out on it, and we f no one feels worse than us when a Tom Clancy novel that hadn't been published yet is sitting on a table. And we've, we've, the ones we've caught in post, we've taken out with CGI. Uh, but, but in our heads, the show's, this story's really happening. And so whether anybody's actually checking, we feel like there's a, a, just a feeling of truth that should come through for the audience that we want to be obsessed with for our own purposes. Thank you. Our, our music you. supervisor is really an artist, and it's notable that for the first time this year, the Academy has created a category for music supervision in the Emmys, and uh, the, those, those people should be recognized for their artistic contributions. It's really great. I tell people, when you use Fleetwood Mac in the very first episode, you have to write And goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Will there be a time jump going into season six? No comment. No comment. How <laughs> <Not> to ask. <laughs> Next, go ahead. Um, um, if you could use the Jennings as a lens to tell a story about another time in the Russian-American relations, where would you put them? Well, I've been thinking about what's going on with them in the 50s and 70s. What are they doing? Well, that's a, that's a great question. You know, they were, they were both born right, right before the end of the, of the Second World War. So... 43, 53, 60, you know, they... Right. Oh, is that what you meant, like, in, in, in America? What were they doing in America during the 50s and 70s? Right, oh, yeah, right. You'd have to do a whole other show. Yeah. Spin-off. Yeah. I, I mean, we always... Well, the whole, the whole story of civil rights and her relationship with Gregory mm -hmm. comes to mind, and, and what, the whole, uh, what the whole Soviet perspective would be on that. We, we heard a great anecdote that uh, during some of the civil rights riots... Uh, Soviet television would bro broadcast them in order to show their people how terribly racist things are here in the United States. And generally, the reaction in the Soviet Union as they watched these windows being smashed was, oh my God, what do they have in their stores? Look at what is in those windows. Why don't we have anything? It didn't work out as, as they expected. I mean, we always, in our backstory, we always thought of them as active during that time. You know, we, we posited in the pilot that as Reagan came into office... Uh, it, things became, as they did, much more whipped up, and they, they came into an even more active period, but we saw them the whole period they were in the U.S. as active intelligence officers, recruiting agents, working hard, and, and doing their thing. You might have to have them uh, working with, with people inside the dark space that are working with We love that storyline. Thank you very much. You know, I still remember very clearly when that came up in the writer's room one day. It's a, it's a good story about how television works because uh, one of the writers had had a... We were looking for a storyline for Sandra, Stan's wife, you know? And we were just trying to think. There was, that character needs something to sort of bring her to life a little bit. And one of the writers knew somebody who had, who had gone to Est. And, and as soon as they said it, we thought, that's it. That fits her perfectly. It'll be great. And then... <coughs> excuse me. 
the idea came up of Stan going with her one time, and then that sort of developed to the idea of Philip going. And then once, once the idea came up of Philip going, there had been something that we'd been searching for from the very beginning of the show, which is a way to sort of help him have some vehicle towards some emotional development. And obviously we were never sending Philip Jennings to therapy. That, <laughs> that just, A, didn't make any sense. He couldn't go, he wouldn't go. B, Tony Soprano had done it, so that was out. So, so we just thought it was never going to happen. But that, that through a chain of Sandra, Stan, Stan taking Philip, that Philip could go, that was perfect. And of course, you know, there's a whole, there's almost an assumption. So many people have this sort of, there's an assumption that if you bring something like Est into a into a TV show, you're going to be sort of negative or snobby about it. And the idea also of subverting that and just looking at the fact that a lot of people who go love it and got positive things about it seem much more interesting and true to us as well. And the, and also the idea that Philip's character, because it would easily you could see that it could be positive for him, but that Elizabeth would hate it. All of that just fit perfectly. So we were just off to the races with it. And as Joe said, it all came out of what can we do to just give a little bit more to Sandra? It's a, it is a great story about how TV writers' rooms can work. And you guys still haven't well. Nope. No, but we did a fair amount of research, and uh, there, there were some really great books on, on Est floating around the office for a while that we've referred to. Go ahead. Well, we watched a great show this season that we can recommend to all of you uh, from Israel called Fauda, which is the story of an Israeli intelligence unit on the one hand, counterterrorism unit, and the story of a terror cell in the Palestinian territories. And it, it, it gets right into that. And it was made, I think, with Israeli and Palestinian actors, and uh, it's quite an extraordinary piece. But it's a challenge. I think it would be... Uh I think it'd be very hard to get an audience to watch a show or accept a show trying to humanize ISIS right now. Maybe impossible, but I've ever since I saw it, I've remembered a YouTube video I saw a year or two ago of just a guy who was either, I don't remember if he was in ISIS or sympathetic to ISIS, and he was standing by a van that was like burning and a bunch of kids had just been killed, and, and he was just screaming about the... U.S. and how he was suffering, and there was there was something about the things he was saying where, for the first time, I kind of knew what he was, I understood what he was talking about, and it was a very interesting experience, and it was conveyed through film, and it was conveyed through a character on a, it was not fiction, but you talk about the power of film to convey something, at the end of the day, when I think about how much do I really understand about ISIS, despite watching the news all the time, I ultimately understand almost nothing. And here was just one little piece of humanity that got through to me. So some part of me thinks it could be possible. But as Joe says, I think very challenging. And I would actually add one of the great challenges of doing a show like that is just the, 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 the emotional sensitivity of the material and the political sensitivity of the material is such that 
it would be very hard, I think, for any writer to, to do an honest portrayal that, uh, that captures true motivations, because unless you're on that side, the temptation to lay in what your cultural motivations would be is very, very strong. And the cultural motivations are extremely different, particularly in, in that world. Uh, there are probably a, a lot more similarities between the USSR in the 1980s and the United States in the 1980s, as different as we felt, than, uh, than an American today and a member of ISIS who was living many, many centuries ago in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's a different story. It'd be challenging, challenging, I think, for, for writers to really get into and challenging for an audience. Hey, it sounds, let's do it. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Um, the, um, so you have, you, know, you have an amazingly unique career trajectory since the show started and now. So can you talk a little bit about how you've changed and what you now know you didn't know back then? And also, I hope that bandwidth is not fucked up or something bad. He was on a mission. <laughs> Uh, I'll start with the bandage, which is the least interesting part, which I just had a little basal cell scraped off. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have an interesting career uh, path, and you asked me about what I've what I've sort of learned. Um, so I'll just I'll just jump to that part, which is sort of probably the most interesting part of it, which is, you know, I never um, I never. I've had a lot of jobs. You know, I worked at the CIA for a while. I worked as a novelist. I worked as a teacher. Um, but I never, I never did anything where I ran anything or had a bunch of people working for me. Uh, that's all been new to me with this job. And it, it's, requ it's required a lot of changes and a lot of new ways of looking at things and doing things. And, uh, you know, I'm generally a believer that when you have to change and adjust, if you can figure it out, if you can pull it off, it's probably going to be for the better. Um, but I've had to, I've had to think a lot and reimagine myself in a lot of ways to, to do this. Um, just literally, on a literal level, telling people to do things was an enormous adjustment for me. The idea to say somebody, can you do this? And then they would do that because they worked for me was really weird. I, I, I didn't, I, it took me a year to, to figure out not only that that was okay, but that I had to do that in order to do my job. Um, and then to ultimately have that just be something I did regularly. And I, I don't know, that's a, that's a thing. There's, there's also a list of probably a, a dozen things like that that come with, you know, going from, you know, running a classroom or, or like I, I had this uh, interesting story that I never forgot about myself that when I was in the, when I was in training in the CIA, I went through this one sort of very intensive training exercise and I was sitting afterwards with one of my instructors alone in a car. That's the kind of situation you found yourself with, sitting at night in a car with an instructor. And she said to me, um, she said, well, you did very well in that exercise. I think you're going to do great in this job. She said it's very grimly and like with a very serious, like in shadows. It was, it was odd. She said, you do very well. Uh, you're not a leader. I was like, okay. <laughs> said, uh, that's okay, because in this job, you don't have to be. You know, you go out there, you're sort of alone a lot of the time doing stuff, so I, I think that's all right. You know, she was also clearly telling me what she was going like, to write on my report. <laughs> you know? and, and once she said that, that was also like fixed in my head forever. 
you know, for the next 20 years. And then I move into this job, you have to be a leader in a lot of ways. And I think it wasn't, I think I also think she was right. That it wasn't like who I was. So there was a lot of uh, adjustment and, and change, but I think it's uh, been benefiting, be benefited me a lot. I have no idea if that's actually the kind of thing you were interested in when you no, asked I, that question, but it's, what's. Well, here's to season six. <laughs> well, thank you so much to you guys. Thanks to all of you. Thank you all. Thanks, everybody. Now leaving Nerdist.com.